Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? This is Anna Galladay, co-director of the Activist Theology Project and co-host of the Activist Theology Podcast. We're glad you're with us this week. We have a really, really special conversation for you. This week, we have partnered with Freedom Road to bring you a conversation around sexuality, identity, and the church. This isn't a conversation that we take lightly. It's not a conversation that we flippantly add into our podcast repertoire as something that we think you might be interested in. This is a topic that's very personal to me, to Robin, and to many of you. As a lot of you know, I was let go by the United Methodist Church because I decided to stand up for and affirm a same-sex couple by presiding over their wedding. We are facing unprecedented times in denominational churches right now, friends. There are denominations who have worked through the conversation on sexuality and identity and have come out the other side more wounded and more segregated than ever. We have other denominations that are right in the middle of it, mine included. This conversation is most important because it affects us. It affects people. It looks at who we are as humans and determines our value. There couldn't be anything farther from church than a predetermined value placed on someone simply because of how they identify or who they love or how they decide to spend their time outside the walls of the church. I'd like for you all to join us on this journey this week and keep an open mind, be mindful in how you Um, listen to the conversations being had. We're really, really lucky that we welcome this week uh, two faith leaders who in their own right are doing amazing work in the world. We will be led by Lisa Sharon Harper, who is the president of Freedom Road. Her pronouns are she, her, hers. We also welcome Shane Claiborne, who is the co-founder of The Simple Way and the co-director of Red Letter Christians. Robin will also join in this conversation as the voice for activist theology. 
And the three of them dive into really deep and treacherous water around who we are, how we identify, and what the church, and more importantly, the scripture, says and doesn't say about our value as humans within the confines of Christianity. We want you to remember that sometimes we engage with voices other than our own, and we acknowledge that sometimes we invite into this space persons of great privilege, specifically cisgender, straight, white men. When we do this, we acknowledge that this type of invitation can seem problematic to some of you. But we want you to know that we recognize this, that we're very intentional about these invitations, and we do so only when the space that these persons represent hold a necessary additional conversation for all of us. Please be in touch with us. Please reach out to us about this conversation. Tweet us or Facebook message or Instagram, DM us at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. And we are thrilled to share this conversation with you. Let's dive in. So how has your life both Shane and Robin, and also I'm thinking for myself as well, intersected with issues concerning the LGBTQ community. Who wants to go first? <laughs> How about you go first, Robin? <laughs> well, um, I think that from an early age, I knew that I was different, not just racially, because my mom asked me if anyone ever treated me differently for my skin color. Mm. She is a dark caramel brown and from Mexico. And so I knew from an early age that I was different. Wow. And I knew that I didn't understand what it meant to be girl or boy and neither of those really fit for me and of course the more I grew the more I interrogated those categories for myself and came out as queer in college but was deeply closeted because I was at a school that would have expelled me had I come out publicly and wow didn't come out yeah do you mind me asking what school yeah Hardin Simmons University in Abilene Texas oh wow um, wow I studied I studied theology there. I was an undergrad theology student. Uh-huh. I did some postgrad work there before wow. I went to seminary and came out in seminary and, you know, was genderqueer in seminary and gender nonconforming. And I felt very close to the term transgender. But at that time, I didn't feel like I needed to be male or female. And mm-hmm. At that time, the only option was to transition to male. And I knew that I wasn't trying to be a man, nor did I feel like I was female or woman. And so wow. um, when I entered my doctoral program, I discovered the language of non-binary. And that was about 10 years ago. Mm. And now, you know, people use that term a lot, but there's still really a lot of work to be done around non-binary visibility. Mm -hmm. But really it's, I mean, my engagement with the LGBTQ community has been very personal. Mm -hmm. Um, And the church has not always been a safe place for me to to be who I think I understand myself to be. Mm. Ooh, wow, Robin. 
Thank you. I honestly, like when I hear your yeah. story, I honestly, I, I'm kind of, you and I have talked about this in the past, but I am reminded of my, the story of my nephew and how his story helps me to understand the depth of your story a little better than I would have. Yeah. And mm. I feel it because of that. I feel it. So I just want to be with you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm like sitting here with you in it right now. Mm. That's mm. how I feel. I have always felt that way with you, Lisa, that you've always really leaned in to understand my story and other people's stories. And mm-hmm. that's, that's such a beautiful gift that you have. Well, thank you. I'll tell yeah. you, it, I was not always that way. And so, I mean, yeah. when I think about how this intersects with my story, it was when I was, when I first started, well, let's, let's go back to the 1990s. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to the 19. Well, I mean, honestly, I have to say that the issue of LGBTQ anything never really came up for me at all at any time until AIDS in the 1980s. And AIDS, in fact, ironically, I was a theater person. I was a theater major at Rutgers University at Mason Grove School of the Arts. I was an actor, you know, in their in their theater program. And it was my very first introduction to anything gay, anything was, or even thinking that that was even out there, a possibility of anything, was the very first theater assembly when all the theater majors of any stripe all come together once a week to have some kind of a conversation or presentation. And this one was done, I believe, by Hal Prince, a really big theater person out there, came in and or somebody like that, he came in and talked to us about AIDS and the impact it was having on the theater community. And this was in 1987, Right. So 1987. And it was just devastating the theater community. And, and that was honestly the very first time the word quote homosexual. This is the word they used at the time, um, was ever used in my presence that I remember. And so it was all associated with AIDS and the AIDS quilt came through our, um, I mean, I really want to cry about it now thinking about it, but came through our campus and our campus crusade for Christ student leaders went out, not as Campus Crusader for Christ, we were all crusaders, like Campus Crusader people. We all went out to see the quilt and we walked the quilt and wept. Now, the funny thing is on a national level at that point, it was, you know, people in the LGBTQ community were all being villainized. And it's interesting, you know, AIDS at that point was was as scary as the coronavirus feels like right now today. You can't go outside, you might get it, that kind of thing. But it was also all being targeted on the LGBTQ community. But I don't think it wasn't on a local level. We were just, we just wept. We just wept walking those, the lines of those quilts. But then, you know, years passed, decades passed, actually, maybe a a decade passed. And then I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in LA. And my next interaction with the whole issue was, the question of LGBTQ people in our fellowship and the teaching that had been taught was that it is bad. It is wrong. It didn't really even need to be taught. It just, that's just, that was the, the common belief. And so I am ashamed to say now that I was a part of, I participated in individual prayer times with people to pray the gay away, you know, and that now now knowing what I know 
in terms of the fact that there is an actual gene. There's a gene, people. There's a gene. (laughs) You can't pray your genes away. You just can't do that, nor should you have to. But yes, that was, that's, that's where I was. And I was there all the way until I left staff, like a decade later. And I left staff and went to New York City. And one of my good friends from Campus Crusade had, had gone through her own like aha moments. And she really challenged me. And what she said was, you can't be, you can't minister, you can't do ministry in New York City and not deal with this issue. You're going to have to figure out what you think, what you believe. Because LGBTQ people, this is ground zero for the movement. And so it was in New York City while uh, in grad school, my second time I went to grad school, this time for human rights at Columbia, where I began to ask deeper questions and ask my friends who were LGBTQ about their lives. And they asked me, you know, about religious liberty and things like that. And I, it was a challenging time, but also a really good, rich time because it felt like safe space to wrestle. But it wasn't until I was asked to write the book, Left, Right, and Christ, co-write it with a tea partier, and one of the chapters was going to be on same-sex marriage, that I really had to make a decision, what do you think? And what year was that? So that was 2000, and I want to say 2011, that I was asked to write the book. No, 2010, that I was asked to write the book, and that we were writing it, and it came out in 2011 one year before the 2012 election cycle. And so it was before the same-sex marriage ruling on, you know, on the in Supreme Court. But it was after, in the midst of writing it, that the case that ended up going to the Supreme Court was adjudicated in California. So it was in the midst of writing that chapter that I really did my research. And I mean, I just asked all kinds of questions like, what is traditional marriage? What do we mean by that? What is it actually, what is marriage and family in the actual Bible? Like if that's going to be the place where, we, where we're going to. Yeah, especially when there's so many examples of marriage in the Hebrew scriptures. Hello, right. And, and they're different actually yeah. through time. Yeah. So we're, what are we going back to? Are we going back to... Solomon? (laughs) Really? Are we going back to David? Are we going back to Adam? Or not even Adam, Adam? Are we going back to Ish and Ishasha? Are we going, what are we going back to? Are we going back to, what are we going back to, right? So what's the tradition? What are we going back to? And so that was a big piece. And then another huge piece was really literally just sitting down and talking with LGBTQ members of that community and asking, what has your experience been in the church? And going into the scripture and seeing that we have not made space for people of LGBTQ orientation, if you will, or that community to live, let alone to be in church, but literally we haven't given them a way to live and be okay alive as they are. That was the thing that literally just kind of pushed me over the edge when I realized the suicide rate and all of those things and a lot of it having to do with the church. So that was my process. And I can share more about, you know, where I landed later. Mm. Mm. Well, I am so grateful just to uh, be listening. You know, I, I love and admire both of you so much. And I think we've had conversations just 
privately and personally and, and to have this in a, in a way that I think other folks can benefit from hearing each other is, is a gift for me. And I find myself honestly um, really doing a lot of listening these days because I think uh, a lot of folks in my own, as Lisa says, my own social location uh, do a lot of speaking without listening. And, and you know, I, I did a lot of talking about this issue when I was in high school <laughs> <laughs> and had no idea what I was talking right? about, along with the, right? you know the death penalty <laughs> and all kinds of other stuff that I feel really differently about. And uh, you know, as, as some of these politicians get stuff that's played from thirty years ago, I'm like, man, I'm not sure I'd be proud of the things I said, you know, twenty or thirty years ago. But I um, can remember, in particular, one time in college where. One of my floor mates that we were we were living in the dorm together, he became a really good friend. And we were talking one night and he said to me, you know, he's gay. And he started to share more. And he said he grew up in the church and he had gone to retreats to have, you know, pray away the gay, to have demons cast out of him, everything else. And then he just starts weeping. And he said, at the end of the day, I'm gay. And I feel like the church has taught me that God made a mistake when God made me. And I um, remember hearing that and with the tears rolling down his face, like realizing that this was not something he wanted or chose, but something that was a part of who he was that also the church had done so much damage to him and and I you know I I I didn't really have much to say. I just remember holding each other and praying and going like if, if this if my friend can't find a home in the church, then what have we become? You know. Um, and and after that, that was one of those sort of uh, crossroads for me where all of my theological ideas or whatever I had, like they, they just sort of started to unravel a little bit. And then I, I had a whole lot of other friends that were on their own journey to figure out uh, who God's made them to be. And I, you know, had friends that had made a decision to be celibate um, as uh, gay folks like Tim Otto, who, um, became a really good friend and has written about his own journey. And he actually doesn't uh, extend that call of chastity to other folks, but that's what he felt called to do. And then so at one point we just said, let's have a better conversation about this. And we um, had a panel with different voices of uh, just people sharing stories like we're doing today. And there were stories that honestly I couldn't reconcile with each other, you know, like Tim as a gay man choosing a life of celibacy, and then another friend who found himself uh, attracted to both genders that ended up marrying a woman, and then another friend of mine who married a man, and now, you know, they're raising kids together, and he, he's male, and so they're, they're living as a same-sex couple. And each one of these folks, I know them, and I know how much they love Jesus, and they chose in different ways of living out their lives, you know, uh, in light of their sexuality. And 
you know, it's really helped me in my own journey. I, uh, I personally spent a lot of my life considering a life of celibacy and chastity and took a temporary vows of, of uh, celibacy and singleness and was considering that for my life. And I, I um, you know, got I was in the middle of those vows when I met Katie. And in fact, we we um, wrote letters for months, just uh, handwritten letters as we were considering dating. And after that period, I did. But one of the things I learned from being mentored by folks that have committed their life to celibacy, especially like Catholics, I was mentored by a a, a Catholic monk, is that Sometimes we focus so much on sex that we lose the conversation around love. And, and I, I think our, our deep longing in all of us is to love and be loved. And I know a lot of folks that have n- never had sex, but they experience love really in a profound and deep way. And I know other folks that, you know, have had a whole lot of sex, but they, still are, you know, haven't really experienced love and are still kind of um, in a pretty lonely place. So I think that the church needs a a better conversation about love and sexuality. And I, for me, I start with a deep lament about the damage that's been done, you know, and, you know, I, I often quote the Barna study. It's a little outdated now, but, you know, some years ago, they went to every state in the U.S. and they asked young non-Christians what they think of when they hear the word Christian. And the number one answer was anti-gay, anti-homosexual. And I think every one of us should be heartbroken by that response. I mean, I think it undoubtedly breaks the heart of Jesus when we've become known more for for excluding people and being against uh, homosexuality and, you know, all that stuff that's wrapped up in that. And then, you know, as I start reading more, the suicide rate of LGBTQIA folks, especially if they've been raised in a Christian home, like, I mean, we've done so much damage. So I kind of start with a, a in a place of grief and, and lament, because I, I think we certainly haven't gotten it right. And, um, you know, uh, as you all say, I think we've got a lot more work to do to really think about what um, uh, marriage is and looks like. But, you know, sometimes we jump too quickly to that and without realizing that let's start by making sure that the place that the, the church is a place where people can love and be loved and be honest about who they are and who they love. And um, if, if we start there, I think some of the other stuff gets a little bit easier. You know, I think you're totally right, Shane, in one respect. And then I also have a question on another part. But but the, the, the piece that I really resonate with is that in the research that I did for that book, Left, Right, and Christ, that one of the, what it really boiled down to was, do we believe that people who are LGBTQ are human? That is the, that's the question. Because if we believe that they are 100% human, fully human, then that means that they are also 100% made in the image of God and therefore called by God to exercise dominion over their own bodies, their own minds, their own lives, and over their community or within their community, 
and throughout the earth. So if they are human, then, then who am I to limit their liberty? Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> and, you know, as Jesus said to the people who brought the woman before the men and said, stone her, stone her, you know, and he looked and said, who of you? Who of you is basically all clean? Now, I realize that that even that itself might even be a triggering reference for some. And so forgive me if it is. I don't mean to say what I don't mean to say is that it is sin. I actually very much, I mean, I'm going to be real. I don't know. And because I don't know, I'm not willing to legislate or put policy around it. But I don't know because I'm exercising humility, the humility to know that I don't know. But what I do know, here's what I know. I know that what I have seen and what I've witnessed with my own eyes is the capacity for people who are LGBTQ and practicing LGBTQ, um, practicing who they are in life, in daily life. I have seen health there. I have seen healthy relationships there. I have seen people literally come, I mean, literally resurrect from being unhealthy when in the closet, unhealthy when, when not actually living fully into who they are, to being healthy and experiencing healthy relationship um, after that. So, so that for me actually has been, that probably is the, the number one thing that has kind of moved me. And that really has been in the context of an ongoing relationship with my nephew. And I'm wondering, Lisa, that personal relationship that you have with your nephew, does that give you evidence for knowing that that he is good and that he is 100% human and called by the divine? Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. So the answer, the answer to the question is a yes, is a yes. <laughs> a hashtag, yes. Are they 100% human? Yes. Yes, they are. So the question, the only question that remains for me is the theological, how do you square this with scripture? But even that, I have to say, even that has really laid down for me. Even that is like 99% solved. And it's solved for me in that it is, the scripture is actually not conclusive. I don't think that the scripture is conclusive. When you are honest with the scripture, with the context, with what it's saying, um, I think that people like David Gushy and um, Brownson and, and others have done really good work with the scripture, ethicists and theologians who I trust. And even they have said the scripture, let's just put it this way, it's not about that. Like it's not, it's just not about that. So to try to make it about that is actually to distort the scripture, which is what the writer of Revelation says in the last page. If anybody distorts this text, you know, God help your soul. Um, I don't want to distort the text. I want the text to actually speak for itself. And when it speaks, it's not talking about this. It's not talking about what we're talking about today. And that's what I became convinced of when I did my research. 
When, when I hear you, Lisa, I, thanks for that. I, I, I think of that scripture where Jesus talks to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And it's very important that Jesus's harshest words mm -hmm. um, are to the religious elite who were self-righteous. And as he said, you know, we're heaping heavy burdens on people would, you know, go across the world to make a, a, a convert and then they would make them a hound of hell. You know, <laughs> I mean, he's got some like really like uh, hard words. And he says to, to the religious elite, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Yeah, I think it's one of the most profound things that he he says. And uh, um, as I as I what I hear Jesus saying is that if you've got all of this morality and theology in your head, and at the end of the day your heart is not right, and at the end of the day you are hurting people, like your theology is getting in the way of love, like God is love. And and we know what love is, what it feels like, what the the characteristics of it are. Yeah, you know, and, and so I think that's like um, a really important you know test for the church is is because I think there's a lot of folks that have ideas in their head that that the way that they work themselves out is exactly like it did with the Pharisees, and there's other folks like. I certainly don't think that, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, I mean, they're also being healed and redeemed from the system and the world that they're in. But like they are able to come in with the, 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 the posture of humility and grace and mercy and love for one another. So I think that's that's really what's at stake in all of this. And you're, when you talk about scripture, you know, there's like six Bible verses that uh, speak in any way of same sex relationships. And. I think that those uh, had a very different context yes. than the contemporary world, right? So like the, the, the same sex relations in the scripture had all, they were shaped by power, privilege, abuse, and there was not a construct of egalitarian, same gendered relationships, the kind of conversations that we're having today where you could have an equi equitable relationship. So you know, that that's what makes it complicated. And, and uh, you know, for those of us that call ourselves red letter Christians, one of the things that's complicated is we don't have explicit teaching about this from Jesus. So there's a lot of room that we're we're trying to understand our world in light of Jesus and in light of those six scriptures that we have. But we have 2000 scriptures uh, that talk about love and justice and equity and God's heart for compassion. So those need to like shape the larger conversation around sexuality. Well, I wonder, you know, if I could ask a question please, yeah. um, to, to some of this, because I think we're, we're hedging in on this so much of what has impacted the church is the politics of inclusion. Uh-huh. And you, and basically you fall on one side or the other. Right. Yeah. And I've always thought, and I, and I'll say this twice because it's jumbly that the logic of inclusion demands the logic of exclusion. I'll say it again. The logic of inclusion demands the logic of exclusion. So what do we really mean by inclusion? Mm -hmm. I've always wondered that because, because Churches are including, or they will say that they're affirming or they're inclusive of a certain kind of LGBT person. Mm. Mm. And when you say kind, are you basically saying celibate? 
it, it could be that. It could be that. It, it could be a celibate person. It could be someone who who mirrors the heteronormative picture, mm-hmm. which is a, a lot of my problem with marriage equality. That we're expecting LGBTQ people to mirror the dominant form of relationship when we know that mm. there's a lot of harm in the dominant form of relationship. Interesting. We go in deep. We go in deep. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, we're, we're getting into it now. Doctor. That's for real. Dr. Robbins got a doctor up in there. I know that's right. Um, no, I, I, so Dr. Robin, I, I think this is, um, this is a fascinating like angle on this because I, I when I'm when I'm in different contexts, one of the the things that I've seen is that I am not sure that we're all going to. I'm actually pretty sure we're not all going to agree on the sacrament of marriage. Like when I'm in Catholic context, even when I'm overseas, I travel to six or eight countries a year, and even the LGBTIAQ, you know, like this is, these are English constructs that when you get outside of that, it's it's even more complicated cultural conversations. And so I I think that what I hear each of us saying that's so important is that every Christian needs to be able to say without apology or exception that Every person is made in the image of God. LGBTQ person is made in the image of God and insists that their lives have, you know, infinite value. Like if we can't say that, we've got a major, major problem. I mean, that's the low hanging fruit. But then what happens then is we start talking about what these words that to me feel very vague, like, are you affirming? And I have friends that have very different definitions of affirming. Some would say, if you know, if you don't affirm polyamorous relationships, if you don't affirm, I just had a pastor say, if we can't affirm every consensual sexual relationship, then we're not affirming. I said, well, what do you mean? Like if, you know, I, I have a consensual relationship with someone else's wife, would that be an A? He's like, yes, that's, that's consensual. And so I think we have really a broad definition of that of, uh, affirmation. And that now what we have is folks that if, if their definition of affirmation doesn't line up with ours, we exclude people. Like, for instance, there are progressive conferences that won't have speakers that don't have a statement on same-sex marriage. So, like, for instance, that's the litmus test. You couldn't have the Pope speak. You couldn't have Sister Helen Prejean or Brian Stevenson speak if they don't have a statement on that particular thing. And so I think that, that what you're saying is so valuable. I think that the answer isn't more exclusion. The answer is a deeper and better conversation that doesn't trivialize this. I mean, people have very strong feelings, but we've got to have a ground zero, kind of a common ground of, of, of love and generosity to folks that are LGBTQ and realize the damage that we've done. But I think when, it, when there becomes a line in the sand the left and the right end up almost mirroring each other, you know? And so you have the the Methodist church that I grew up in that I think had an epic fail and excluded all affirming congregations. And, and then you have these other circles that, uh, you know, have a different litmus test and they're going to exclude anyone that doesn't see eye to eye on the LGBTQ conversation of, of affirmation. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I worry about 
I'll just say this quick, and I want to hear what you have to say, Lisa, is that whoever's doing the including has power to include and power to exclude. And so we need to make sure that we're also doing a power analysis when we are talking about including or excluding. Shane, I love what you said about us needing to approach us as in those who represent and, and are not represent, but are a part of the quote dominant culture as in cisgendered, not, I mean, binary, uh, or at least living on a binary male, female, and, um, straight, <laughs> you know, that, that those folks, when, when you look at it from, from our perspective, from that perspective, then yes, grace has to flow from us and, um, and love and inclusion, right? But I actually think that to level that playing field, grace has to flow from the other direction as well and love from, the, because that, what that does is it places the choice to love in both directions, in all directions. It places the, the power to love, to offer grace in all directions. And it, it, if not in a solid lived reality, at least in the construct and in the thing we're working toward, it levels the playing field, the power playing field. But I also want to say this, that the question, or I should say, and I want to say this, the question of inclusion for me is central because the question, I guess, is the inclusion into what and inclusion of what. Right. So inclusion into what? Into, into the capitalist franchise <laughs> and inclusion into white dominant patriarchy, inclusion into, inclusion into the church, inclusion into, well, you know, you can even just say on the basic level, which I know is like the most basic things that people in the LGBTQI community have been fighting for is just simply inclusion into life, the ability to live and breathe and not and not be beat up. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and be able to have a job and not have it taken away from you and the ability to have children, adopt children, the ability to live. That's what I, I that's what I see people struggling for. And that's when I say inclusion, that's what I mean. Now, when we talk about, uh, now you brought up affirming, the question of affirmation, so welcoming and affirming, right? I, I think my experience of counseling my nephew is really what I go back to. And I don't mean to use him. And I think he would actually be, I think he'd be very proud of this conversation and I will share it with him. But when I look at his life as his auntie, mm-hmm. he comes to me for advice, like a lot. Like he'll text me on the daily saying, you know, auntie, what do you think of this? Or auntie, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this. What do you think? And what I found is that he and his friends, who most of whom are, are somewhere in the LGBTQIA plus community, he called me he and his wife actually called me maybe a year or two ago and blew me away with a really funny question. <laughs> he literally said, auntie, auntie, we have a, a, like a really weird idea. And I know that you might think it's crazy, but I was just talking with my friends the other day. We were thinking, we want to get together and start to read the Bible together. What do you think of that? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> That's called a Bible study. <laughs> That's what that is. Yeah. That's called a Bible yeah. study. And the reason why he said that is because 
we don't have people to guide us. Mm. We don't have a church. Oh, come on. Yeah. We don't have leadership and ethical leadership. We're just, we're out here searching. We're out here wandering. We don't really know which, we don't have a compass. We need a compass. And so, you know, so when he calls me now and he says, you know, you know, auntie, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? He's looking for a compass. So I think that, that, so inclusion, I'm inclusive of all people and I'm inclusive of all people loving all people. But I do think there are actions that all people can take that are not loving toward the other. So look, folks, I am in process and you are literally listening into a woman in process. And so I'm, look, that's what this is. It is a, it is a real, this is a real conversation. This is not talking points. This is not, this is not prefabbed, canned, you know, one-liners. This is real. So when I think about that, another thing that comes to mind is the reality that so I, okay, so I was at a lunch, I was at lunch one time with a, um, a pastor in New York City. Again, um, pastor with Southern Baptist Convention roots, wasn't in the Southern Baptist Convention at the time, but had those roots and um, had a really, really large burgeoning church. And, you know, at the time had only, his church was only about a couple years old, but he was starting to deal with this, with the issue of LGBTQIA um, equity and equality in his church, because one of his church leaders that that week had come forward to him and say, uh, you know, I'm gay and I want you to marry us. <laughs> and he was like, uh, oh my God, what do we do? And what he said to me over lunch in many ways kind of shaped, I think, how I approach these things now. He said... What do I do as a pastor when my colleague comes to me and says, I am gay and I want to be in a monogamous relationship? Now, I realize this is going away from the polyamorous. I get that. I'll come back to that. Um, but when, I, when, I, when his parishioner says, I want to be in a monogamous relationship, do I tell him, no, I will not marry you. I will not be a part of that because that's what my church has said is not, I, I can't do. But in knowing that, knowing that when I do that, I am actually then relegating him to a life of polyamory, like of not even just polyamorous, of what he called serial monogamy, because it's impossible then for him to commit to one person for life. Like it is impossible to enter into the covenant that we were created, our, our souls were created to yearn for. And then he said this, he said, I think that I'm leaning toward, and I say this now, knowing that this is really where I'm at, I'm leaning toward understanding our sexuality in light of the reality of the fall. And in light of the reality that none of us, none of us has a perfect sexuality, absolutely none of us. And, and, and also, what is perfect sexuality? And also, the reality that God provide, God did not create us with clothes on. <laughs> Think about that. We were not born with clothes on. We were not created, nor in Genesis 1 or 2 were folks running around with clothes. Clothes are Genesis 3 after the fall. 
And it is after the fall that God covers over our nakedness, our what we then interpret as our shame with the fig leaves, with, with the animal skins, actually. God actually kills one of God's own creation in order to cover over, to help us. And so what if, what if all of the ways that we exercise our sexuality in ways that are healthy, the ways that we find healthy for us, what if those things are like animal skins, like fig leaves in the meantime? What if? That's that's where I am. And I realize I might get some angry letters from that too. I get it. But this is my process. I, I just uh, would jump in to, to say that I, I really appreciate our conversation around when, when we're thinking about fidelity and covenant. These are like really core principles of scripture that um, yeah. I think are, are unraveling in a lot of our society. I mean, I think it, it's um, uh, a lot of our progressive circles can end up being deconstruction to the point where I love when you're talking about your nephew wanting a Bible study, you know, because I, I um, see a lot of our uh, the folks that I am mentoring or walking alongside uh, in, in our neighborhood, they grow up and a lot of the, the our families, not even just in, in Philly, but I mean, in the suburbs all over our country, like it's hard to find really strong families and covenant that's held. And I mean, the, the irony that many Christians mirror or surpass the divorce rate of the like mainstream culture. Like, I think we have a hard time with covenant and fidelity. And, and and there's something really beautiful about that. And I think when we end up talking outside of the, the idea of monogamous lifelong partnerships, even if we might disagree on on the sacrament of marriage and things like that. I think that those are those are really important core principles in the scripture that I see kind of the unraveling in the fabric of American families. I took some of uh, the young people in our neighborhood to a festival that was a lot of the the the, the circles of progressive Christianity end up like being almost post-evangelical therapy. You know, it's like uh, kind of recovering from what evangelicalism and fundamentalism has done to them. And when our kids came to that, you know, one of the young guys in my neighborhood, li- he lives in a family with two moms and he's going to these conversations. I'm hoping he'll find some, you know, helpful handholds and constructs. But so much of the conversation ended up just reacting to a fundamentalism that he didn't grow up with, that it still wasn't uh, a constructive place. So I think we've got a lot of work to do to like, I mean, We've got a lot of polyamorous relationships in my neighborhood, and I think a lot of our young people have a really hard time with the idea of fidelity and covenant, and we can't let go of those in the midst of the other conversations, you know? Well, I I think that I feel like as the only trans and queer person on this call right now, I want to speak both from my experience as someone who I was in a 16 year relationship and I married my partner. I wrote the entire service, the liturgy, and I wrote it based on covenant. And I, I intended to marry one time and have one partner. But what I discovered was that our vocations were misaligned and 
It's not that we couldn't deal with covenant or it's not that we couldn't be committed for lifelong committed partnership. It was actually we had reached the end of our season of our relationship and we pivoted out of that relationship and got divorced and we pivoted into a new season. And sometimes that happens. And I think that what I worry about is if we privilege covenant and fidelity, we're disenfranchising a lot of people because there are a lot of LGBTQ folks who don't understand those concepts because they've not been churched. And if we're going or to even be, allowed to or allowed to, allowed to have right. it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, the institution has so disenfranchised LGBTQ people that we are actually using a foreign language. And so, and I know that that language is important to y'all. Fidelity is deeply important to me, but I probably have a broader understanding of fidelity than, than maybe y'all do. And that doesn't mean that I'm wrong or y'all are right. But it just means that as a queer person, my orientation to love and fidelity, I think, is broader than what the institutional church has allowed for it to be. And so I, what I worry about is I worry about people being harmed listening to this, listening to our conversation when they might say, well, I've been taught covenant means X, but I prefer Y. And that's not, and that, and I'm not trying to push polyamory, but I, I do worry about privileging this, this language of covenant and fidelity because it's really evangelical. It's very religious. And so many of my siblings are disenfranchised from being included in that framework. And so I wonder how do we have a healthy conversation and a robust conversation about sex and sexuality from, from a place that doesn't harm. I mean, when I think about doing public theology, I don't think about doing it from an institutional place, but I always think about doing it from a communal place. And so how do we actually help community without disenfranchising community? That's really good. Wow. Wow. Well, <laughs> I honestly, I honestly feel like that for me is maybe the growth edge. That's the place. Yeah. That's the place. I don't know. I don't know. But I, what I will say is that when you talk about, here's, here's the thought that went through my head as you were, as you were talking is I wonder if it's helpful, if it would be helpful to pull back even further and get even even more of a larger view, a wider view of this conversation, because it's zeroed in very much on the on the question of LGBTQIA, and which is, of course, that's the subject of the of the episode, right? So we're going to talk about that. But it also comes in the context of a larger context, which is white patriarchy, yeah. right? And it's that context has so, so deeply structured the way we even have the conversation and the way the church has approached it. Because at the heart of the church, especially the Western church, has been the white patriarchal project. And I I think about my conversation with the folks at Church Clarity, right? And I I was really blown away, actually, by one thing that was said in 
in that episode was that, you know, white patriarchy is threatened by the LGBTQ movement because it doesn't have control, because it's one more place where white men are not able to control society. And um, a, a white man who decides that they like men is an aberration to malehood, to white malehood, because it's that man is choosing what they would imagine is the role of the woman. And that's, that feels like a complete betrayal of white malehood. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to shift, you know, away from, I, not at all. In fact, I think that, I think we have to examine the, the framework within which we have this conversation in order to see our way to another way of having the conversation. Because, yeah, well, because. <laughs> I mean, I think you make a great point, Lisa, that if we want to keep the status quo in check, white governance, white patriarchy, white institutions, mm-hmm. um, and even Black churches, you know, mimic white patriarchy. Yeah. So how do we actually break out of that imagination, that moral imagination, and actually lean into a more just and equitable imagination where all creation flourishes. When I have spoken with indigenous folks, activists, also scholars around the world, one thing that is clear to me in most indigenous communities, and indigeneity does not mean Native American. Indigeneity means indigenous to the land. So you find indigenous people in Africa, you find them in Europe, you find them everywhere, right? Because there are people groups who are indigenous to land everywhere, but this also includes in North America um, and South America that there is the construct of the two-spirited person. Like there is an understanding and there was a role within the community for, the, for that people group. There was a, a value that was actually, um, they had value, actual value within the community because there was an understanding of the strengths that they bring to the whole community. And there was a way that they were given space to live and flourish and thrive within the community. So I think that, I think honestly, part of the thing that I, I, I guess you're seeing me wrestle with is the fact that we have read the scripture as if it was written at Starbucks by a white person. We have, we are reading this brown colonized text as if it was written in the halls of Rome, but it was not. It wasn't. It was written in caves and on the run with, by brown people who were not European and who were not Western, were not, and some of whom were not even male. So they didn't think like that. And yet we have placed that on top of the text. So I know I'm in process. That's part of the reason why I said, what would it do for us to pull back and to understand the context within which we're even having this conversation? Because if we recognize that even our reading of the text is a Western overlay on top of a non-Western text, what does that do to the way we think of even covenant? What does that do to the way we think of humanity and what even what Genesis 1 is actually about, Genesis 2 is actually about? It's no longer necessarily about Adam and Eve. In fact, it's not about Adam and Eve. Those words are not used in that text. Those names are not there in that text. The words are Ish and Ishasha, right? And the one who actually... In the beginning, this is the thing that blows my mind. If you are true to that text, now you see me clap my hands because I'm so passionate about this. If you are true to Genesis 2, then you must 
you must accept the reality that the first human was non-binary. The first human was Adam, which simply means of the earth. And it is, it is not necessarily a male construct. The first male language you see is when when God takes that rib out of the human and separates male from female, right? Ish and Ishasha. It's the first gendered language you have in Genesis 2. But humanity doesn't start there. So it could even be, one could theologically argue, I mean, literally could argue as a literalist from the text that that the most human humans are non-binary. You, I mean, you, you're preaching the good word, right? We have... When, when scripture was interpreted, and I learned this when I took, I, I was a biblical language minor in college, we've read gender into the Bible and we've created, we socially constructed a narrative to fit a particular paradigm. And we need to be careful, like if we're going to read the Bible literally, we also need to do the historical work of understanding that Adam just means earth creature and there is no sign to Adam. Yes. When I think of Jesus too, I think of Jesus as the embodiment of that, you know, kind of the everything that it means to be human. So often translated the the human one, you know, that, that the son of God is often translated the human one, right? That, that, um, we see Jesus weep over Jerusalem. We yeah. see Jesus flip tables. We see all of the, uh, like kind of the, the, the best of all of humanity kind of manifest there. Um, and, you know, I, I even see that as we look at God, you know, uh, I think it was Lauren Winter that said, it's interesting how we have these churches that are all named like uh, a certain way after the metaphors that are most prominent, uh, like, Church of the Good Shepherd. Uh, but she said, uh, when have you seen a church of the mother hen? Right. Um, but, you know, we have that image, too, right? the, the breasted one, El, you know, El Shaddai. There's all these different language words that uh, even the pronouns for the Holy Spirit, you know, that transcend gender that we. So I, I see that, you know, to be to be human is to have be made in the image of God. And we certainly see a complexity in God. And, you know, even like, as you're saying, the first human, it's, it's pronounced good when they're helping one another. So that, you know, the, the communal nature of God is in us to love and be loved is what we see as we're made in the image of God, where two or three of us gather, you know, God is with us, this kind of call to community. So I, I vibe with that. I, I think that, that one of the things that as I, think of uh, the the larger global conversation, it, it really is complicated, right? Because yeah. the United Methodist Church, again, like where I grew up, is a very white denomination. And yet the U.S. community of the Methodist Church was in some ways more affirming and inclusive than the global church. And I think there were global folks that were used as kind of Ponds and this maneuvering and everything else, but but it 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 doesn't get easy as you move outside of like white American culture either. Like when I'm in communities in Latin America and other places, there's still constructs around this that um, uh, make the conversation complicated. So I, I just want to you know I think it's it's not like um, if we can just get outside of the U.S., uh, all this becomes crystal clear. I think it's still a really, uh, a really difficult thing when I'm, you know, when I'm in 
places that, I mean, just like the prosperity gospel, I think has, has been exported. Uh, I think there's a lot of colonialism that, that has been too. And, you know, that, that's where I've got some serious anarchist tendencies, which uh, vibe with a lot of what both of you are saying, you, Lisa, like, I don't think that the government should be performing marriages any more than it should be baptizing people. I mean, I think this is a holy work for the church. I do think it's the role of the government to protect people from discrimination and bigotry and violence. And that's why LGBTQ rights, I think, should be at the heart of every Christian, no matter how we, you know, think about marriage. And, uh, but yeah, it, it really is a, I'm, you know, as I get outside of the U.S. too, it doesn't feel like it's an easier conversation for people in other countries. I think we're still really wrestling with some of the same things. And, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to be able to call some things out, though. I mean, when you've got countries where it's a capital crime or even a crime at all to show same sex affection, I mean, geez, can we not, you know, all like rally around undoing that kind of hatred and discrimination. I mean, for the love of everything, a lot of times the evangelical church has kind of been complicit with these regimes that end up doing some of the the most uh, hateful policies in the world. I mean, and uh, I think we've got to like stand on the side of love. Yeah. I mean, I can agree with that. Yeah. Okay. So can I ask a question? So, and this is a question for you, Robin, what for you, what is the role of process and grace in this conversation, because that for me feels like the place where, honestly, you know, I, we we just um, on Freedom Road podcast we just dropped last month an episode that was specifically about abortion, and the reality that abortion is not is such a powerful political weapon in our country because it's never talked about, and. I think that the same is true for the LGBTQIA conversation. I mean, I experienced a break in my own denomination and ultimately left it because they didn't talk about it well. When they did talk about it, they talked about it, honestly, in a, in a cisgendered, straight, dominating way. And they chose their, they chose the prophets they would listen to and the ones they didn't. And they, and they, the ones they listened to were the ones who affirmed where they were and they didn't really give any credence or even listen to or read the people who, who disagree with them, who are incredibly credible theologians and ethicists. And so it was, it was kind of, it almost honestly, it felt like a Jim Crow trial. Like it felt like a, um, like a rigged, a rigged process, like the kind that we just saw with the impeachment trial. Like you're looking at it going, we know, we know where this is going and this is not an actual process. So what is the role of process and grace, you know, in this, the grace to have the conversation for you? Well, I mean, I think both as a theologian and ethicist, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Mm-hmm. And also I have personal experience. And I think the role of process and grace is I I just want my story to be heard. Ah. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Because voice is agency. Right. And if we can and I know on the Activist Theology podcast, we believe story can change the world. Yes. And Freedom Road, that's Freedom Road too. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So I, I'm not trying to push an agenda, but I am trying to contribute to social healing. 
And we are so broken in this world. And as we see with our American politics, everybody has an opinion and everybody thinks they're right, but no one is telling stories to one another so that we can actually mobilize. Mm. And so the process for me is around storytelling and the grace is just the opportunity to tell my story and to be heard. Mm. Amen. How about for you, Shane? Oh man, I'm I'm just sitting with that. I think that I'm I'm first of all really grateful for both of you and and I I in particular Robin I, I Lisa and I get a lot of time together and you you and I Robin haven't had quite as much but I I look forward to continuing to learn and listen to you and and read everything you write and and you know all that we've kind of created Red Letter Christians for, um, Lisa's been a part of it from the beginning on the board, is to cr- kind of create a platform where we are sharing our stories and the passions of fire in our bones, and we're listening well to each other. And um, I certainly think that we're better off, you know, and wiser and um, better with your your voice among us. And so any way that you can bring yourself to to our community at Red Letter and and likewise any way that I can be a conversation partner with both of you I sure want to do that I I, I think we need uh, more conversations like this and and more relationships with people that can build that trust you know um and and uh, the humility to realize that um as one of my mentors said it, it didn't take long for the Israelites to get out of Egypt but it took a whole long it took a lifetime to get Egypt out of them so you know we're 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 kind of like trying to get that system out of us and i i certainly still see that it has its you know kind of uh, um uh, hooks in in me as a white man and i want to i want to be a good listener and friend and and show up when i need to to support my friends and that are that are especially suffering the brunt of exclusion and and bigotry and hatred um and and certainly the lgbtqi community is is uh that you know has has experienced that so um thanks for this time and i look forward to more times like this yeah this has been great thank you i just want to say honestly i just want to i feel like this conversation is sacred it is a sacred conversation that I, I hope that others will lean into and, and begin to open their mouths and voice their stories. And the doing that we will knit our broken relationships back together because that's really ultimately what it's about is the capacity to love and be loved. Yeah. Mm. That's real. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to Activist Theology kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. Ooh,
me no.